some of you may remember how I finished last week's sermon. I finished by quoting Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Hebrews 12, verse 2 in the message. I presume most of you are familiar with the Message Bible. It is a paraphrase. It's not the Word of God. It's a paraphrase of the Word of God. So you have to be careful. You can't build doctrine on the Message Bible. Uh, but he says things in, in some creative ways sometimes. And I like the way he said this to kind of drive the point home from last week, which is the true believer is what? Does anybody remember the key phrase last week? We are, we are pilgrims and we are progressing. This is what true Christians do. Uh, we're not fans of Christ. We don't sit in the chairs and applaud Him. We don't just watch what He does. We don't just hear what He says. True Christianity is all about being a disciple. True Christianity is all about doing the Word. It's about incarnating the Word. And in doing that, one reason, one thing that motivates us in doing that is always looking at the golden shore, as Adoniram Judson used to call it, the golden shore. We're always looking at heaven. And this is what Eugene Peterson, how he paraphrases Hebrews 12.2. He says, Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished the race we're in. Study how He did it, because He never lost sight of where He was headed. That exhilarating finish in and with God. It's what we talked a lot about last week. What drives the true believer is the fact that one day very, very soon, if we believe our Bibles, we will stand in front of our Creator and our Redeemer, or if we're not in Christ, our Judge. But we will stand in front of Him and give an account of all that we've done in the body. It's not about sin. It's about how you, what kind of steward you've been. Our sin's been removed from us, but it's about what kind of steward you've been. How you've used your talents and abilities and resources uh, for the glory of Christ, for the propagation of the Gospel, for the edification of the saints. Some of you remember last November as we finished our verse-by-verse look at Second Peter, I inserted a sermon uh, between Second Peter uh, chapter 3, verses 13 and 14 about heaven. Because this is what Second Peter chapter 3, verses 13 and 14 says. But according to God's promise, we are looking... Let me ask you, are you looking? You know, it's been my experience in just talking with Christians through the years that heaven, it's like not on most professed Christians' daily radar screen. It's like, it's something nice to think about, but I don't think about it every day. Beloved, we should be thinking about it. We should be looking at it. It's one thing Peter's saying. He says, According to God's promise, we are looking for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, let me ask you again, are you looking for these things? Or, or has the world captured your attention? You know, I know that we struggle at times and I know that the world can distract us, but the Bible says, are you looking at heaven? Are you looking at God? Because that's really all that matters ultimately. He goes on and he says, Since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. It's what we said last week. The Apostle Paul is saying, I press on. You remember? He says, I'm not perfect. 
And we'll talk more about that in a few minutes, but he says, I press on. I'm a pilgrim. I'm progressing. I'm headed to meet my Lord and Savior. I'll stand before Him. I'll look Him eye to eye. And I want to be about the Matthew 25 thing. Right? As we talked about last week a little bit. Well done. We want, don't, you, don't you want to hear those words from the Lord Jesus, from your, from your Creator and Redeemer? Well done! Well done! You indeed were my disciple. You made much of me in the world. You paid a price for it. Well done! You loved me. To the greatest degree, the best degree that you could, well done, the Lord will say to His faithful disciples. You may remember back in November, when we talked about that heaven sermon, I mentioned to you Florence Chadwick. Now, she's the woman who first swam the English Channel in both directions. I think that was in 51. A few years later, she tried to swim from Catalina Island to the main shore or to the, the, the shore of California, the mainland in the U.S. You may remember the story. She was five, I think it was five miles uh, no, excuse me. She wasn't... Well, let me just say it this way. About 15 hours into her swim from Catalina to California, a thick fog set in and she couldn't see the shore anymore. And do you remember what I told you? She ultimately had to be pulled out because she just couldn't see the shore. And because of the fog, she couldn't see the shore. And she lost heart. And she has to be pulled out of the water by her escort boats. Now, some months later, she tried it again. The fog set in again, but this time, she says, when she talked to the press after it was over, after she had made this uh, swim successfully, she said, I kept a mental image in my mind of the shore. And I challenged you back in November, as I've said to you already, are you doing this? Do you have an image, a biblical image in your mind about heaven? Is it in your mind? Are you pointing at the Bema seat? This is one of the things that I think Paul is saying to us in this text. In so many words, God is using Paul to blow away the fog. Paul is saying, look at Christ. Love Christ preeminently. Don't call yourself a Christian if you don't love Christ preeminently. Because Christians, real Christians, love Christ preeminently. They do not love anything before Christ. He is first. He is always first. This is the clear teaching of the New Testament. He's exhorting us to remember, as Paul said, those great words in Philippians chapter 1 that I go back to all the time. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. Paul, Paul defines discipleship. He really defines Christianity. For, to, for, for me, he says, to live as Christ, to die as gain. And so, we've been talking about this in Philippians 3. Is, is that how it is with you and Jesus? To live as Christ, to die is gain. And so, we've been seeing Paul's testimony, his personal testimony here in Philippians chapter 3. And he's, it's like he's saying, like Florence Chadwick's mother was encouraging her when she was trying to make that swim. It's like Paul is saying to us, kick it on in, you can make it. 
Press on. It may be hard right now. It may be foggy right now. You may be being persecuted at the university. You may be being persecuted at work because you take a stand for biblical Christianity. You may be persecuted. But Paul says that doesn't really matter in the end. You press on. You be who you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be a pilgrim and you keep marching on. You're oh so close. And this is the message, part of the message. You're so close. You're almost home. Kick it on in. I'm going to stay with the swimming metaphor. Kick it on in. You're close. Don't give up. Don't let the world intimidate you. Don't let anyone intimidate you. You are a son or daughter of the living God. Go out in the world and live like it. Be the light of the world. That's who we are, beloved. And God has called us to live like it. So no matter how hard or foggy it gets, we keep kicking. It's Hebrews 11, verse 10. We're looking at the celestial city. We're looking at the golden shore. Hebrews 11:10. We're looking for the city whose architect and builder is God. Hebrews 11:16. We're desiring a better country. That is a heavenly one. And some of you remember, what does God say about the men and women who live like this? Remember what God says about them? He doesn't say this anywhere. There's nothing like this that's even close to this anywhere else in the Scripture. God says, men and women who live like that, I'm not ashamed. Anybody remember? I am not ashamed to be their God. The men and women who are really coming after me, the men and women who truly love me, who make much of me in, in their life, in their career, in their marriage, in their social contacts, in their leisure... I'm not ashamed to be their God. Don't you love that? <laughs> Does it give you goosebumps? I'm not ashamed to be their God, he says. I'm not ashamed to be their God. So it's how Christians navigate, negotiate, and process this temporal life through the prism of the eternal promises of a faithful and beautiful God. No matter how foggy it gets, we press on. Amen? It doesn't matter how hard it gets. It doesn't matter how deep you are in the valley of the shadow of death. We press on. We press on. So in Philippians 3, we've more or less had Paul's personal testimony. You may remember part of it was read, but he says, I was the perfect Jew, man. I, I, I was the perfect Jew. I, I was the perfect Jew. <laughs> and then he met Jesus. And being a perfect Jew didn't mean anything to him anymore. I just want to love Christ. I just want to know Christ. I just want to magnify Christ. That's how it is for a true believer. Someone who's really met Christ, who, who's had an encounter, a genuine God encounter with the living God. And Paul says, everything I valued before Christ to me now is dung. It's refuse, he says. It doesn't mean that there are not appropriate things to value under the Lordship of Jesus. Of course there are. But we value those things under the Lordship and the Godship of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I can't make my life about religion anymore. I can't make my life about being a perfect Jew anymore. I've met God. And that matters more than anything else. Amen? And that's Christianity. Have you met God? You know, we talked about it last week. I don't care how religious you are. Have you met God? 
Paul, the most probably one of the most religious men to ever walk the planet, he didn't know God. He thought he was serving God, but you remember what Jesus said to him on the road to Damascus? He said, why are you persecuting me, Paul? Do you remember? This man who thought he was magnifying God and worshiping God, he was in fact persecuting God. He didn't know God. But that changed on the road to Damascus. And we're seeing part of his personal testimony here in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3.13, he says, This one thing I do, I press on. Philippians 3.14, he says, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We mentioned it last week. Paul's doing two things, which is really only one thing. The two things, it's really only one thing. He's moving on in his sanctification. He's cooperating with the Holy Spirit to be made holy. So he's moving on in his sanctification. The second thing he's doing is he's pressing on toward heaven. These two things are really only one thing. You've never met a man or woman who's really interested in heaven that's not interested in their sanctification. A man or woman who's really not interested in being made godly, who, who's not interested in being conformed into the image of Jesus, they're not really interested in heaven. It's just the truth. So these two things are really one thing. Paul says, I press on in sanctification. I press on toward heaven. And we said it last week. It's just a, it's, for me, it helps me remember because Paul called himself the hard-pressed man in Philippians 1. Why was Paul hard-pressed? Corin? you told me last week. Why is Paul hard-pressed? No pressure. He's hard-pressed because he doesn't know whether he wants to stay here and honor Christ in his temporal life or go and be with Christ in his eternal life. He's not really sure. He says, I know it would be very much better to be with Jesus, right? It would be very much better. Let me ask you, do you know that, beloved? Do you know it's very much better to be with Christ? And the only reason He's left you here is not to have a great career and make a lot of money and marry some cool person and have a lot of kids. Those are great things that sometimes He blesses us with. But the primary reason you're here is to make much of Jesus. If you're a Christian, He's left you here to be a disciple. That's why you're here. You know, we got some new people with us tonight, and I always challenge the new people, right? As some of you old alum, you understand. You think, well, I'm here to go to school or I'm here for a job. Wrong. That may be the visible reason you're here. You're here to make much of Christ. That's really why you're here. That's really what this sojourn in Milan is all about. Yes, praise God. You'll get an education. You'll make a living for your family. You'll start a new career. You'll create a business, whatever. That's all great. But that comes under the, that all falls under the Lordship of Jesus. And you're making much of Jesus in your studies. And you're making much of Jesus in your new career. You're making much of Jesus as you make a living. Because that's who we are. We're disciples. Amen? That's who we are. It's what we do. So Philippians, I'm going to focus on, I know it's a long introduction, but the text is not long tonight. So I'm going to focus on Verses 17 through 21, as we finish the chapter, Paul says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Paul says, Follow my example. Now, at first reading, if you take this 
Uh, out of context, you would simply think, well, Paul is an egomaniac. Paul is saying, I'm perfect, do what I do. Well, we know Paul's not perfect. He's already said, I've not yet arrived. If you read uh, the earlier verses here in this very same chapter. And the book of Romans was written two or three years prior to Philippians, so the Philippians have already read Romans chapter 7. They know Paul's not saying he's perfect. They know Paul is saying, I still struggle with the sin nature within me. This is not what Paul is saying. Paul's not saying, follow me because I'm perfect. Paul is saying, follow me because I'm not perfect, but I press on. Amen? That's what Paul is saying. Don't follow me because I'm a perfect man. I'm certainly not. Romans chapter 7. Paul says, follow my example. It's, I think testimony was given a couple of times during the prayer request time. I fall, I get up, I go with Jesus. I press on. I'm a pilgrim pressing on. <laughs> this is Christianity. Pilgrim's progress. There's a reason it's the most famous book in Christendom after the Bible. Pilgrim's progress. We are pilgrims and we are progressing. In a very personal way, Paul shows us, as we talked about last week, the soft clay. I challenge you to be soft clay in the potter's hands. Are you soft clay? Are you pliable in your Creator's hands? Are you willing to be what He has designed and purposed for you to be? Or not? I mean, that's, that's a huge question for, for anyone who professes to be a Christian. Are you soft clay in the potter's hand? Ultimately, Paul is saying, follow my example. I'm trying to be soft clay. And then he, notice he says, observe others who walk in this way too. He says, don't just look at me. Look at others who walk this way. It's what we talked about last week as we mentioned Hebrews 12, verse 1. God, you remember Hebrews 11, God says, this is faith, this is what it looks like in real life. Then Hebrews 12, 1, God says, oh, did you saw all that in Hebrews 11, the first verse of Hebrews chapter 12, God says, that's how I want you to live. Did you read Hebrews 11? Read Hebrews 11. That's what real faith looks like. Then Hebrews 12, 1, God says, oh, I want you to live like that. Okay? So we look at Paul, well, we look at Christ, we look at Paul, we look at the men and women of Hebrews 11. I personally, I like to read biographies uh, of great Christian heroes. One of my favorite, this is in the, this is in the cabinet, we only have four left, so, you know. Uh, if you haven't read this book, you need to read this book. It's the biography of George Mueller. Um, who God used, you, most of you probably know the story, to feed, house, clothe, evangelize, educate 10,000 orphans in his lifetime. He never asked anyone for money. He never did fundraising. He prayed it down. He prayed down the provision of God. <laughs> yeah, I love this guy. He's a giant, right? If you haven't read this, you owe it to yourself. Paul says, look at men and women who are doing it or who have done it and learn from them. Be inspired by them. I have an example I can give you. Uh, my spiritual mentor, the main man God used as I was converted at 28. Um, you know, I'd been in church all my life. I'd seen a lot of people who wear the label Christian, but I'd never seen anybody get out of the boat. I'd never seen it. I'd been around church all my life. 
And I'd even begun to sit in deacons meetings, but I still didn't really know anyone who lived outside the box in a, in a Christian context, if you understand what I'm saying. And then I met this man named Jim Eliff. And the thing about Jim Eliff was he was an itinerant preacher and he wrote books, but he had no visible means of support. And this troubled me, right? <laughs> he had no visible means of support. He didn't ever charge like some evangelists do to go preach. He didn't sell his books. He gave his books away. He printed them at his own cost and he gave them away. This man had no visible means of support. He simply trusted God. And I watched him do this and I was astonished. And then as the Lord called me out of business at the age of 42 to go to seminary, I went to the seminary Jim had moved to and I, I did his books. I was a CPA in a former life and I did his books, right? And I saw how God provided for this man and his three children. Money would just come in from people, right? It would just come in. And I was in awe of this. And I thought, man, I want to live like that. I, I want to know how to trust God like that. I, 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 I just, you know, God doesn't call everyone to live like this. I'm not saying this is the norm for everybody, but I'm saying God put it in my heart to just trust Him by faith. And I still remember there was a church called the International Church of Milan. It was closed. They weren't meeting anymore. They had no members. They had no uh, money. Uh, but they called us and said, Jim, would you come and would you and Karen come and lead the International Church of Milan? And, I, and we don't have any money. We can't pay you a living wage, but would you come? And it's like, what? <laughs> you know. But what I heard was, and the guy that offered us the job, he said, you know, it's on paper this doesn't look possible. And I can still remember talking to Jim Eliff. And I said, Jim, I told Jim all of this, and Jim said, well, you're going to go, aren't you? He said, things like this don't happen for no reason. And I think that's what, you know, did the deal for me. My point being, if there are godly people in your life, and I'm talking about godly people who are aggressively obeying and following and trusting and believing and serving God, Learn from them. It's one thing Paul is saying to us in this text. Verses 18 and 19. For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. The thing about it in this text, the Holy Spirit's not really warning us about Satan in a direct sense or the manifold enemies of the Gospel that are in the world. What He's really warning us about are the wolves in sheep's clothing that infiltrate the church. It's, it's happened from the very beginning of the church. Every book in the New Testament deals with false shepherds and false teachers and pseudo-counterfeit Christianity. I know you probably hear me say it a lot in here. It's one of the most important things I say because I don't know how many times I'm going to get to preach to you before you bail on me or before you repatriate or whatever it is some of you guys do. So I want you to understand there's a difference between biblical Christianity and pseudo-Christianity. Pseudo-Christianity is false. It's false. There are many strands of this in the world. And I won't 
enumerate them all. Simply to say there, there are works, there are Christianity that, that really are built around works. Roman Catholicism would be an example. There's, there's Christianity that's built around really unintelligible mysticism. I think Eastern Orthodox would be an example. Uh, another example would be the, the Protestant strain of name it and claim it, prosperity. All of these things take your eyes off of Christ and His sufficiency. And it's one thing I said to you earlier. Philippians 3.2 God says, Beware of the dogs and evil workers. What is He talking about there? He's talking about the Jews who wanted to add what to salvation? Anybody remember? You had to be circumcised or you couldn't be a Christian. God hates it when people add to the Gospel. God hates it. So anytime you're in a so-called church and they're adding to the Gospel, or they're taking away from the Gospel, or they're spinning the Gospel, or they're amending the Gospel, or they're editing the Gospel, run as fast as you can. This is what Paul's talking about. He's talking about pseudo-Christianity. And he's weeping. Why is he weeping? Because it takes millions to hell. It simply does. If it's false, someone tell me, I do this once a quarter, I think. If it's false, if it's a lie, where does it come from? It comes from Satan. He's the father of lies. I don't know how many times I get to preach to you. But I don't want you to ever forget there is such a thing as false or pseudo or counterfeit Christianity in the world. I don't want you to ever forget it. And I want you to beware of it. Whatever you hear preach, don't even take my word for it. I don't tell you to take my word for it. Don't take my word for it. Be in the Word of God and understand by the Spirit of God what God is saying to you. Yeah, don't take my word for anything if you don't see it here. So, this is what Paul's talking about. Look what he says there in verse 18. He says, many... There are many who are the enemies of the cross of Christ. And he's talking about those who are inside the so-called church. He's not talking about the overt enemies of the cross. It's worse than that. He's talking about the covert enemies of the cross. Those who have added religion to Jesus Christ. Those who have added mysticism to Jesus Christ those who have added health, wealth, and prosperity to Jesus Christ. All of these are false Gospels. And there are many differing variations of this in the world. Did you notice in verse 18, Paul, he's weeping about this, and I mentioned it to you early because false Gospels are damning. Verse 19, he talks about the, their end is, is, is destruction for these false teachers and those who willfully follow them. I heard a guy preaching about this, you know, name it and claim it guy in the States. He's got the so-called largest church in the U.S. It's uh, Joel Osteen. He's talking about, about Osteen, you know. And, and why, do, why are people flocking to this false teacher? Why are they flocking to him? Because he's telling them what they want to hear. You know, the letters of Paul are very clear. The time will come where men will not endure sound doctrine. And they'll love doctrine that men make up and it tickles their ears and it sounds good to them and they like it. And it appeals to them on a fleshly level, on a temporal level. 
Paul says their God is their appetite, their glory is their shame, and they're setting their minds on earthly things. What is he talking about? In my mind, this runs parallel to what Jesus said to the religious guys in Matthew 7. Not last sermon, but the sermon before, which was about a month ago because we took a break over August. We talked about Matthew chapter 7. Remember, all the religious guys came before Jesus and they said, we did a lot of cool stuff in your name, Jesus. We were very religious. We cast out demons. There were several things they did. I don't remember all the things they did, but they were very proud of their religious resumes. You may remember. I think this is what Paul's talking about. And remember what Jesus said to him? I don't know who you are. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, how is religion lawlessness? We talked about this a lot. How is religion lawlessness? It's lawlessness because men think they can make themselves acceptable to a holy God through their religion. This is a stench in the nostrils of God. God has given us one way to come to Him. They're not ten ways or five ways or three ways or two ways. There's one way. His name is Christ. We come to Him not through religion. We come to Him by grace. Right? We are saved by Christ alone, through grace alone. Basta. This is the biblical gospel. I really think this is what Paul's talking about. Because these religious, religious men and women, it's not so much I am here to honor and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm here to be seen. I want men to acknowledge my religiosity. Uh, I'm justifying myself. Every time I go to church, I'm pleasing God in some way and I justify myself. I'm earning favor with God because I go to church or because I do some good deed, I'm earning favor. Beloved, if you're thinking like that, you've got the, this, is, this is wrong. This is not how the Bible speaks. You're saved by grace in Christ alone. You're not earning God's favor. You're not earning your salvation by doing good works. The good works simply come because you love Him. Now, you get rewards for the good works, but you earn nothing towards salvation. We are only saved by the finished work of Jesus and His shed blood. Verses 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has, given, that he has even to subject all things to himself. Paul says, if you're really hard-pressed, you're serious about pressing on. The hard-pressed man or woman presses on. If we're really in love with Christ, we press on. We just do. That's what we do. We press on. It's what Paul said to the Colossians in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. You remember how he said it? He said, keep seeking the things above. So I will ask you, are you seeking the things preeminently and primarily seeking the things above? I understand we have subordinate obligations and responsibilities and issues of life we deal with. I get that. But are you seeking the things above before 
all other things. Paul goes on to say, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. As I mentioned to you earlier, the true believer, he's thinking about Matthew 25. He's thinking about that well done. You remember in Matthew 25, these guys, these guys had gone to work with the, the, the resources that uh, God had given to them. And you remember the Master came back and He demanded an accounting. He said, what did you do with what I gave you? Now how many millions or billions of people in the world are going to have to say, I spent it all on myself? Do I need to say that's not very good stewardship? The Christian understands that everything we have, everything we are, it's a stewardship. Every brain wave is a stewardship. Every, every uh, breath of air, it's a stewardship before God. He's given these things to us that we might make much of Him, beloved. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm always astonished. So many folks, they think it's about them. They really do. They think their life is about them. It's all about me. Well, let me ask you. Did you create yourself? Or did you just wake up one I don't know, when you, when you start to begin to remember, did you wake up and just realize, I'm conscious and I'm here? How did it happen? Well, it happened because a loving Creator spoke you into existence. He brought you into existence. He dreamed you up. He thought you up. He designed you. He brought you out of your mother's womb from your father's seed. He did that. And then people live like, it doesn't matter. I don't care what God says. Even though the only reason I'm here is that God put me here. Beloved, do you see the arrogance of it? Do you see the arrogance of it? How arrogant it is before God to live like this? Like it's all about me? Every day is all about me? It's about what I want? It's about you know, what I'm dreaming? It's about what I want. Beloved, it's not... This is not biblical Christianity. We're to submit our desires to the Lordship of Jesus. And I've told you this many times. Oftentimes, when you submit your desires to Christ, He redeems them and gives them back to you. It's kind of like the Isaac thing, right? But sometimes He'll give you something infinitely better <laughs> than you even, that, you'd ever, that you'd never dreamed of. He'll give you a bigger dream, a better dream, a more satisfying dream a more thrilling dream. So these guys in, in, in Matthew 25, Jesus says, Well done, you good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your Master. I like the point here in verse 20. Paul says, We are strangers. We are exiles. We are aliens. We are citizens of heaven. We are eagerly awaiting the return of our incarnate, crucified, risen, reigning Jesus Christ. We are expecting and eagerly awaiting His return. I know you've heard it said, you are not really ready to live until you're ready to die. And every true Christian is ready. Every true Christian is ready to die. Aren't we? Aren't we like Paul? To live as Christ, to die as gain? To die as gain! 
You know, if you put anything else in that line, if you take out to live as Christ, if you take out the word Christ and you insert career, you insert family, you insert children, you insert money, you insert popularity, you insert power, whatever you put in there, to die will be loss. To die is only gain if you supremely love the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Paul references here, He is coming for us. He is returning. He's made the promise and He's coming for us. And it talks about how we'll be transformed. We are not only spiritually transformed. If you read John 17, I mean, you can't read John 17 and not get on your face and worship God because He talks about in a mysterious way how we're not only spiritually transformed, but we're caught up into the glory and joy of Christ. And this text here tells us that we, our bodies will be changed even to the kind of glorious body that He has. When we see Him, we talked about it last week, when we see Him, we will be like Him. 1 John something. Uh, chapter 3, verse 2. So I want to go back to Florence Chadwick and her first attempt to swim to... California from Catalina Island. She didn't make it. It got foggy. She lost heart. She couldn't see the shore. She didn't think she could do it. But she made it the second time because she had it in her mind. <laughs> I'm, headed, I'm headed to the shore. And the shore is that way. I am oh so close! She, she was pulled out of the water. I don't think I mentioned to you. She, pulled, she was pulled out of the water the first time a half a mile. She had swum or swam, she had swam 25 miles. And she quit a half a mile from the shore. A Christian never quits. We understand that. That's not the part of the analogy that I want to make. But the Christian presses on. And Paul's blowing away some of the fog of the world for us. And he's saying, press on. Press on. Press on to the golden shore. So Paul says in these last few verses of Philippians 3, he says, look at good examples. Look at uh, men and women who really live their lives by faith. Look at Jesus. Look at Paul. Look at the men and women of Hebrews 11. Read good Christian biographies. Look at the godly people that, that Jesus has put in your life. Look at them. They'll help you press on. He also says, look out for the enemies. Look out for counterfeit Christianity. Look out for the dogs and evil workers who are trying to sell a different kind of, of Christianity. Look out for them. Because if you stay away from them, if you stay on the true Gospel, the biblical Gospel, it'll help you to press on. And Paul says, look forward with expectation. That's what he's saying in his last verse or two. Look forward to the coming of Jesus and you're going home to be with Him. These are some, some, I guess, some good advice that Paul has given us about being pilgrims who are progressing. And I just want to close. I'm going to read Hebrews 11, 13-16 and I'll be finished. The Holy Spirit writes, He's talking about Abel and Enoch and Noah, Abraham and Sarah. And then in verse 13, he's referring to all these that he's already mentioned. He says, all these died in faith without receiving the promises. You know you're not going to receive every promise God's made. You know, this is where the health, wealth, and prosperity thing, it drives me nuts. 
most of the promises they claim, it's for there. It's not for here. It's for the other life. It's for the next life. It's for heaven. It's for heaven, beloved. The lion's share of God's promises for His people are in heaven. So, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and welcomed them and having... uh, welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So I'll ask you, is that how you see yourself as a stranger and an exile upon the earth? Verse 14, For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. They know they don't belong here. We're not here to stay. We're here to leave. We're here to leave, beloved. Verse 15, And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they could have had opportunity to return. Verse 16, But as it is, they desire a better country. It's a clear reference to heaven. They desire to be with God, right? A better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For He has prepared a city for them. Amen? Beloved, we're on our way home. And so I just want to encourage you tonight. Press on. Press on. Look at men and women who've lived the faith. Learn from them. Look out for the enemies of the faith. The enemies of the cross of Christ. Beware of pseudo-Christianity. And look forward with expectation of looking your awesome and beautiful Redeemer God in the eye. It will be soon. It will be soon. You are a vapor upon the earth. It will be soon. Press on. Press on. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank You for this text, this encouragement. Because we all, as you know, you know our frame as I prayed earlier. We are weak and frail. You know that we need your help. We thank you for this counsel from your word to look at other men and women and how they have lived the faith in a radical way. How we might steer clear from pseudo Christianity. So Lord, we thank You. And how we might, with great anticipation, look forward to Jesus' coming and or our home going. Thank You for this Word, Lord. I pray that each one sitting in this room has come to know You. And I pray, Father, that we are all pressing on. That we would be pilgrims. That we would be disciples. That we would do the job You've left us here to do. To love Jesus Christ and to make much of Him in our life. We give all praise, glory, and honor to His beautiful name. Amen.